Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. And it's great to be back with you after our summer break. Earlier this year, the Edelman Trust Barometer, a 20-year ongoing global study, told us something you likely already know, that trust is waning in all aspects of our society. Now, we've all heard reports that trust in government and the media have been on a steep decline, but Edelman tells us that trust in business has fallen just as precipitously, a reflection certainly of all of us who hold leadership roles. Now, if you're wondering why trust in business has plummeted so greatly, I only need to remind you of the blatant breaches of trust made by companies like Wells Fargo Bank, Volkswagen, and Purdue Pharmaceuticals, just to name three. Whether it was selling customers millions of products they never asked for, manipulating sensors that hid the amount of pollution their cars were putting in the air, or aggressively marketing opioids known to be highly addictive and even fatal, leaders at these companies intentionally place profit above people, fraud they gainfully got away with for years before being detected. Now, while companies like these did unusually profound and long-term harm to their customers, Another effect that they had along the way was to trick many of us into believing that trust had become a virtue for softies, that it was no longer essential for organizational or even leadership success. And as an indication that many of us may have taken that to heart, Gallup research shows that employee engagement is 12 times higher when people trust their boss. And so noting that engagement remains absurdly low all over the world, this stat gives us a strong indication that too many workers have lost faith in their own boss's integrity today. A few months ago, I was speaking at an event and the speaker preceding me was Stephen M.R. Covey. And it was a wonderful moment for me to meet the man who's devoted his life and career to spotlighting the importance of trust in leadership and whose book, The Speed of Trust, has sold over 2 million copies and been translated into 22 languages. Thinking of my audience as I always do, I asked Stephen if he would come on the podcast and share some of his research, particularly the conclusion that building trusting relationships isn't just an ethical and right thing to do, it also proves to drive far greater and sustainable team and organizational performance. And that's just what he's joining me here to discuss. In case you're wondering, Stephen's father, is the author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, one of the greatest selling books of all time and a classic of classics in management leadership. And that, of course, means Stephen is a chip off the old block. One year into this podcast, we've never really made trust a key topic of discussion, and so I'm excited to be remedying that today with my guest, Mr. Stephen M.R. Covey. A very, very warm welcome to you, Stephen. Hey, thanks, Mark. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I'm honored that you're here. And as I told you when I met you this spring, if someone asked me to name the one book that had the most profound impact on my life and career, I'm almost certain I would say The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So knowing that your father's book has sold over 25 million copies, which is astonishing, it has been quite challenging for you to find your own way and voice in the world. And so what I'd like to do, start things out, and ask you, how did you maneuver through this? In other words, tell us about the challenges you face as a young man and the lessons that you learned as you work to differentiate yourself and build your own unique brand. How did you do that? Yeah, it's a great question, Mark. And I would say, first of all, I was 
really excited and proud to be part of my father's work with Seven Habits because I believe so much in it. And so I chose to join him, work with him, because I thought that the work that he was doing, just like you said, his book was so impactful on you. I knew that his work could have that kind of impact on people all around the world. So I wanted to be a part of it, but I really did struggle with the question you're asking. I also kind of wanted to carve out my own identity and yet be part of his work and impact. And so it was a little bit challenging (laughs) and it certainly was kind of more challenging emotionally to try to figure out how to do this and still be my own person. And the net effect was this, when I came out of business school, I joined with my father and I kind of went down the business path. If my father was more a thought leader, writing, teaching, speaking, about seven habits and principles and leadership, I kind of went down the business path of building the organization, building the business, the Covey Leadership Center, and we built to go around the world and we organized and created partners and built the sales force and built the presenting force and this type of thing. And I started kind of learning the business that way and then I moved up and then I became our president and CEO and kind of ran the company. And that was kind of my way of differentiating And I kind of carved out that niche, that identity in that sense. And it wasn't until later that after having done this for some 15 years that I finally realized that I had something to say too. (laughs) And that was the birth of the speed of trust. And, but, you know, I really didn't go down that path at all until later. But then after many years, I said, you know what, I think I've got something to say too. And at this point, I felt more secure in my identity of who I was that I went down into the world of speed of trust. And I became more like what my father was doing with being a thought leader and trying to write on this topic and speak on this topic and go deeper. So my own career is an evolution of two halves. The first half being the business side, the second half being the thought leader side. But that was my way of navigating that. And I never intended to go down the thought leader side. I thought I'd stay on the business side forever. But that kind of emerged for me where I felt called that I had something to say But it wouldn't have happened, I don't think, had I not first gone down the business side. But also, I felt a sense of inspiration and calling to go down that path as opposed to just mapping it out. So do you think that was a conscious decision early on? So in other words, you came out of business school and you started to not only support your dad, but ultimately running his company. Do you think that that was a deliberate pivot, an unconscious pivot to say, I'm not even going to compete on the thought side. I'm just going to run the business and leverage the expertise that I've developed, i.e. through the education that you had, your other background. Do you think you did that so that you would just steer clear of having any direct competition with your father? Yes. The truth is that I didn't want to be compared to him and fall short, which inevitably would happen. And so it was kind of a conscious choice of saying, I'll go down this other path. I think I'm good at it. I think I can add a lot, but also it helped me avoid kind of the comparison. And I would say this, Mark, even later when I felt I had something to say, I still was wrestling with how can I say it with my name and and I'll always be compared to my dad and will never quite measure up. So I had some of that even later But it was only when I said, you know what, why worry about that and just be who I am. I feel inspired and impressed that I've got something to say and don't worry about the comparison. Rather, 
embrace it. Embrace that I've got a great legacy and tradition to follow in. And, and that's a positive. But that took some emotional maturity for me to get to that point. And that's why maybe it happened 15 years later and not up front. Well, you maneuvered through it really brilliantly. And I think, obviously, not all of us have Stephen Covey as our father with that kind of success, but we all have parents who have influence over us. And that idea of measuring up the language that you used, you know, that affects us all. Are we going to live up to their expectations, their hopes? We don't want to disappoint them. And if we have, obviously, some parent that is over the top successful, it becomes, I mean, I've always wondered what it would be like to be Frank Sinatra Jr. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, right <laughs> out of the gate, you're never going to be the original, right? So congratulations. And I appreciate the candor and how you maneuvered through that and understanding that there's an emotional pain and, and then you have to confront that again. It's like, am I a writer? Can I write something compelling enough that's going to stand up? And so you did. And, you know, you're a chip off the old block, as they say. So I want to get into to your book in a second, but I would like to ask one more question related to the book, and which is, what's the backstory on that? It's a remarkable book. It's really, I mean, just the whole seven habits and then the sharpening the saw, the, the whole idea of these components. When you think about interpersonal relationships, when you think of time management, when you think of character, when you think of leadership effectiveness, I mean, it, it rings all the bells. And how did that happen? Like, where did all this come from beyond inspiration? Yeah, <laughs> it really was a process that I kind of was witness to just growing up in my home and with my father, as all of us kids were. And, you know, he began teaching the individual principles in the seven habits in the 1960s mm. and 70s, but he never brought them together. So he'd be teaching about proactivity a lot. And then he'd have another presentation about vision and personal mission statements and what became begin with end of mind, habit two. But over time, what came to him was kind of this organizing model that's in the seven habits of how all of this is about moving from dependence to independence to interdependence. And then he organized it into a framework. The book Seven Habits was published in 1989, but I think the first time he brought all these principles together as the Seven Habits was a decade earlier, in 1979. And then I saw the Seven Habits go through all kinds of iterations, not the principles behind it, but the naming of it and the articulation of it. Like, be proactive is habit one. And I remember early on, it was just called proactivity. Begin with the end in mind, habit two. Early on, it was called creativity. Put first things first, habit three. Early on, it was called, you know, productivity and, and stuff. And so how he kind of really made it accessible because the strength of seven habits is how it's such a useful framework and a language and it's so practical and tangible for people. It's almost like an operating system for human effectiveness. And that was my father's gift, I believe. So there's a long backstory to it, but I knew that it was gonna be successful because I had seen during that time, people respond to it. I'd been with my dad on presentations, even growing up as a young boy, going out and seeing how people would respond to these principles that he was teaching and these stories he was telling. And I knew that there was something there. And then when it all kind of came together in this organizing framework, I thought, wow, this could really be impactful. And that's why it was compelling enough that I said, I want to be a part of this because I think it can make a real difference in the world. And I believe it has. 
Well, clearly it has, obviously, and profoundly. Where was he teaching this? Was he teaching this in like a church setting or was he teaching this academically where you observed this? I'm just curious as to what the audience was, the early audience. Yeah, kind of all of the above. He always did it in his academic settings and in his classes. He kind of had the ability to organize a leadership development class that was basically his stuff. He teach it in church settings. He teach it in community settings just with different opportunities in the community. But my dad, even when he was a professor, he always did consulting work and speaking. And that was just kind of a second thing that he had going on, like a lot of professors do. And so he would go out and give speeches and work with clients. And as kids growing up, he'd outline kind of his calendar and he'd ask the family. We had nine kids. There's nine of us. And, And he'd say, okay, here's all my trips that I see right now for this next year, who wants to go with me on which trip? And we'd all pick a trip or two and he'd take us and we'd go. And so- I love that. I love that. Yeah. Oh, it was it was great. I, we loved it as kids. I remember as a 12-year-old picking Orlando because I wanted to go to Disney World at the same time while my dad was going to be speaking. And then we could spend time there together. And, and it was really fun. He involved us in his work. And so his travel didn't feel- like he was gone all the time. It felt like we were a part of it, you know, but he might be with IBM or with Aetna. You know, I remember some of these early clients that he's teaching these principles to. So it was, you know, clients uh, and academic settings and other settings, kind of almost anywhere and everywhere. I was actually one of his early clients and hired him to come speak at our organization and had a about an hour-long conversation with him over the phone before he came. So I kind of feel like I got to know him a little bit. And I just love that from a parental standpoint. But let me ask you this. So he took you on these trips. The expectation was you'd sit in the back of the room and behave and listen, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, I mean, he trusted you to do that. He did. He trusted, and as a young kid, sometimes you didn't appreciate what you were hearing, but I saw how the audience responded, and actually a lot more seeped into me than I thought, that being part of this and hearing him so much, and I didn't realize that till later when I took a class for my dad in college, and then it came time to the test, and all these tests are graded blindly, so no one knows who took it. And everyone was complaining that this test was too hard and I aced it and no one else did at all. You know, no one knew who I was, that I was my father's son because they were blind tests in terms of knowing who the person was. And I thought the test was easy. Everyone else thought it was way too hard. And I realized it's only because I've been around this my entire life. I've been marinating in this thinking for a long time. Yeah, that's right. I've been immersed in it and it's just part of how I think and who I am. And so I really did learn a lot more, but he did extend trust to me this way. And and for those that are familiar with Seven Habits, he tells the story of green and clean <laughs> where he te- you know he teaches his son how to take care of the yard. And I'm that son. I was a seven-year-old boy and he trusted me to take care of the yard and to water it. This is when you had to turn on sprinklers, you know, manually at the time and to take care of it, keep it green and clean. And it was extending trust. So The principle of trust that came alive for me, I learned firsthand from my father because he extended such trust to me in meaningful and profound ways. And he just came part of how I saw the world through that lens. Well, I mean, you're almost clairvoyant here in anticipating my next question, which is now transitioning into your book, which Speed of Trust has sold over 2 million copies, been translated into 22 languages. 
how did you anchor on trust is the topic that you wanted to explore. I mean, I'm hearing now that your dad may have had some influence in this, just in how he treated you and bringing you and bringing your siblings to these events and allowing you and believing in you, giving you obviously the, the law and responsibilities. Did that trigger this or where did trust come for you as the focus of your life's work? Yes, it did help. But at the time, I didn't attribute it to that. It was almost later, Mark, when I stepped back and I realized that I'd seen a model of this kind of extension of trust to me and what it did to me. But that came a little bit later, but it still was profoundly impactful. But what happened initially where I got kind of clear that this was a message that I had inside of me and I saw it first was when I, in running the company, the Covey Leadership Center, and in seeing the world through the lens of building high trust relationships, first with you know our own people and with suppliers and partners and with customers. And then I saw that we had a, a supplier relationship where we had a high trust relationship with one supplier, a low trust with the other one. And I saw the huge difference in the two relationships for a similar product and how with the high trust one, we moved fast, low cost and greater quality outcomes. The low trust one, it took longer, it cost more. And we're always worried about it. And I began to say, you know what? Gosh, trust is not just this nice, soft, warm and fuzzy social virtue. It's financial. It's economic. You can put a value on it. And then I saw it everywhere. I saw it in, in our relationships, on our teams, in the culture, clearly with clients. And I began to say, you know what? This is a big idea. There's a business case for trust. It's an economic driver, not just a social virtue. And it's impacting everything. And it's so obvious at one level, kind of like it's right in front of us, and yet we're not focused on it until we lose it. And then I also began to realize that it's learnable. Trust is learnable, something we can move the needle on. And that's a paradigm shift from most people who operate from the premise of you either have trust or you don't. It's either there or it's not. And I'm saying, no, that's your starting point. But in the same way that you can diminish and lose trust through your behavior, you can also consciously, deliberately create it, grow it, expand it, extend it, even restore it through your behavior. And in fact, you can get good at this. You can build trust on purpose, intentionally. And the idea here was that trust was is learnable. It's a learnable skill, a competency that we can get good at. And that most of the stuff on trust that was out there was either too simplistic you know, just too idealistic and simplistic or too academic and not practical and tangible enough. And I felt like, gosh, with my experience as a practitioner, kind of seeing the power of building a high trust team and a high trust culture and the impact that that has and knowing how to do it and then comparing that to a low trust team and low trust culture, that I had something to say. And then all of this was magnified when we did a merger of Covey Leadership Center with Franklin Quest to form Franklin Covey. And we were arch competitors and we came in and even though we were good people on, from both companies, we suffered from distrust because we were competitors coming together and it took a while for us to build it. And I kind of experienced my own trust crisis, if you will, that showed me how important this was. And that gave me empathy and understanding because suddenly I was in a situation where I wasn't trusted by half the people and I had to earn it, had to create it and grow it. And it gave me understanding 
of how important this was. And I feel like this is an idea that is real, it's useful, and I can make a contribution on it. So I felt called to do it. And I've seen a great model of this my entire life. I've experienced it my entire life in my father and what it did to me. And that was more like the affirmation that this is the right calling for me. Well, I'm listening to you. And then when you listen to the podcast, you'll hear the introduction. But we don't have to look very far to find some major abuses of trust, organizational trust, where, you know, CEOs knowingly are leading organizations into doing things that either harm their employees with intention or obviously their customers, society as a whole, the environment. And it makes me think of something that you said when I met you, which is this sort of understanding that oftentimes, particularly you, it's certainly true for me as well, that when we're invited to come in to speak to organizations, they're already on board with it. They're looking for reinforcements of an idea that they've already bought into. So my big question is, can you convince the leaders and managers and companies that don't really have trust as a core value, that haven't really embraced it, might see it soft and weak, as you were describing, or just really just disregard it as unnecessary, like this is war out there and we're going to do whatever it takes. I mean, where do you stand in terms of believing that we can actually change organizations to lead with greater trust, knowing obviously all the financial upside that's entailed with it? Yeah, it's a great question, Mark. And it's a world you know well too with what you do with leading from the heart. And here's my experience with this. There's no question that there's a number of companies, leaders and organizations that kind of already value this and that want to get better at it. And that's a lot of the work that I do that our team does is work with the people that believe in this, believe in trust, believe in high trust team, high trust culture. They value it and they know it doesn't just happen by accident, but they're intentional about it. They're deliberate. They get better. But I'll tell you what, that's a huge part of the audience. But increasingly, there are people out there that maybe they, ne they never started with trust as a value. They don't really believe it in their heart and, you know, they don't see it. But I've learned this, that if you can frame trust in economic terms, you have a chance to maybe get them to recognize the importance of why we should focus here. If you can put it in financial terms and connect it to their world, to their priorities, to their strategy, and to show how distrust is actually impacting their ability to achieve their strategy their goals, that it's a tax. It's a low trust tax when there's trust and it's slowing everything down and it's costing more and it's diminished, diluted, taxed. And if you can frame it in financial terms, you have a chance to get people to see this differently. Not everyone will go there and some will still poo-poo it or hem and haw, but I'll tell you what, there's many that said, you know what? I never saw it this way. I knew trust mattered, but I just saw it as social. And if you can say, aha, it's not just social, it's financial because it affects the speed at which we can move and the cost of everything. And it's also diminishing every other dimension of your strategy. And suddenly I find that people become more open to it. And I'll acknowledge you don't get everybody. There's still the cynics and the people out there that might give lip service to it. They're not really bought in. But we've had a lot of success in kind of reframing trust, helping people see it in a new way, a different way of how it's impacting everything. And they never saw it that way before. So I'm a little bit optimistic that these principles can be taught 
well, I like to say they can be learned because people have to kind of come to it themselves. But I try to give them a whole way of thinking about it. And the more I can tie it to their initiatives, to their strategies, to their priorities, and that could be, for example, innovation, collaboration, engagement, retention of people, growth, safety, all kinds of things you can tie trust to. I'll give you one example. There was one client that wanted to innovate, trying to get into innovation, but they realized over time that they're not going to innovate very well if they couldn't collaborate among their team because they were really uh, interdependent in so many different ways. And they couldn't collaborate if they didn't trust each other. And so they kind of came about it the long way, which was we want innovation, but we had to show how innovation is tied to trust. Because when you have trust, people are not afraid to take a risk or make a mistake compared to when you don't have trust. Mm -hmm. And when you have trust, people can collaborate. And all these things are vital to innovation. So we kind of work backwards toward it. So if you can do that kind of thing, frame the business case for trust, frame the leadership case for trust, why this matters, then I think you can really start to have an impact on maybe some of the cynics. I don't think you'll get a mall mark but I think that there's many people that will be impacted by this kind of reframing of it. Well, it is a little sad when you think about it. That, you know, the way to sell people on a noble value or virtue is the financial aspect. It is. You know, it's like, oh, you know what I mean? And I mean, I'm faced with that myself. It's like you have to demonstrate to people that, you know, if you lead this way, that it's going to have a financial upside to you where you would hope that people would say, well, it's kind of the right thing to do anyway. So, you know, I hear that and I'm, but you're very smart. It's like, hey, you know, if you don't buy it from this point of view, buy it from this point of view, because this one matters to you more more than the other one does right now. And I suppose any way you can convince people to become more trustworthy and trust earning, the better for all of us, right? Right. So I want to ask you, I mean, benchmark where we are. Where do you think, you know, as a society in terms of and I won't even get into government right now. I think that's just <laughs> it's such a hot issue. But Look at business and just look at society. Where do you think we are? I mean, benchmark us in terms of, I don't even know how to calibrate it, but maybe you do in the sense of, are we getting better at being more trustworthy of other people? There seem to be signs that it's going the other way. I'm, I'd like to hear your point of view. Yeah, Mark, I, it is more going the other way. We live in a low trust world that's only kind of perpetuating itself and continuing, and, and the data on this can be overwhelming. You look at the you know, Edelman trust barometer that they put out every year that measures trust in different institutions, and, and they measure it all around the world. And there's some movement from different countries, different sectors, and the such, but overall, trust is low. And in most cases, tends to be kind of going down. There's other measures that will show that it's clearly going down in sometimes very dramatic ways, significant ways. It is a low trust world. And the danger is that distrust is contagious. It tends to spread and create more distrust because people become more careful and more cautious, more guarded. And that perpetuates itself because people respond back more careful, cautious, guarded. They see a scandal and, they see, and people start to say, gosh, you know, what else is out there? 
who else is doing this? They see bad behavior by a CEO or something, and they're just saying, huh, I wonder if everyone's like this. You know, and this is really, they, they start to project, and there's a contagion to this distrust that is dangerous and perpetuates itself. And that's kind of somewhat the climate, the environment we're finding ourselves in. Now, we, there might be some exceptions in different places, but it's a low-trust world. And so that is the challenge, but it's also the opportunity and the need. We need leaders. We need teams. We need organizations that are saying there's a better way to lead. There's a better way to operate in a low-trust world, that you can do the right thing and get economic results. And it's a better way to do it, both because it's the right thing to do and because it's the economic thing to do. And so, you know, I'm a realist. I'm pragmatic about this. There's a crisis of trust in so many different ways in so many different situations. And, and that's our context. And we have to kind of address that, confront that. And the good news about it is that trust is built from the inside out, not from the outside in. And so the outside in is this, the context, the society, all these forces that are saying there's low trust around us, people don't trust anymore, and all these examples of untrustworthiness. And that is a reality. But ultimately, what we can do as individuals and as leaders is to look in the mirror and start with ourselves and you know, ask ourselves the question, do I trust myself? And do I give to my team a leader that they can trust and kind of ripple out from there. I call that inside out. And nice thing about that is it puts the control right in our circle of influence that we're responsible. But, you know, it'd be naive to not acknowledge our context of a low trust world that tends to kind of continue to perpetuate itself. And so, so yes, that's our challenge, but it's also our opportunity. And so while I'm a little bit discouraged at one level, I'm far more optimistic at another because we see the example of leaders and people that are saying there's a better way to lead, there's a better way to operate, you know, from the Tony Shea at, at Zappos to, you know, even a longtime leader, Warren Buffett at Berkshire Hathaway, they're saying this is a better way of operating with high trust, even in a low trust world. And so that gives me hope and optimism with all that's going on. So I have a couple of questions for you, and they may not be connected, but the first one is, how did we get here? So why are we in a low trust world? What brought that on? And then the second is, I'm wondering if you can get into the psychology of a leader. Like, you know, I don't mind calling him out. John Stumpf, who was the CEO of Wells Fargo. And I remember having a conversation with Jim Clifton, who's the CEO of Gallup. And I asked him, I said, hey, if you could pick one CEO, like in America or anywhere, you know, that you admire the most, who would it be? And he just like instinctively said, John Stump, look at the remarkable stuff that he's done at Wells Fargo. And yet, of course, it's come out that over at least 15 years, maybe longer, this was an organization that was pushing people relentlessly to get numbers at any cost that led to fraud at like throughout the entire organization. And of course, he was ended up let go and finally revealed that the leadership that looked pretty great, was not based in any amount of trust. And so I'm wondering, what's the psychology of a leader who thinks that that's the way to get numbers? That's the way to get results? That's the way to operate an organization sustainably? It just seems illogical, but a lot of people are doing it, and I'm wondering what you think about it. Yeah, yeah, no, a lot of people are doing it, and they're doing it because it seems to work. They're doing it because it's kind of what they're scripted in. It's what they're good at. It's what they know. You know, the old command and control type style. 
Mm. And, you know, it's really a relic of the industrial age. And we've become a little bit more enlightened with our command and control and, and a little bit more sophisticated on it, but it's still deeply rooted in that kind of mindset. But it seems to work for many. But at some point, if fundamentally you're violating principles, at some point there will be a comeuppance. It may not be immediate, but it usually is ultimate. And sometimes it may not even be in the tenure of a particular leader. So some leaders can come in and kind of slash and burn and operate, you know, just out of efficiency and get results in the short term on the financials and then they get promoted, move on to the next job. You know, they never paid the price or the consequence for it. But the comeuppance ultimately happens and it may be years later. So my question is, you know, is to say, okay, it seems to be working, but play it out over time and play it out across all stakeholders, not just shareholders, but what about employees and what about customers and what about partners and what about communities? And so, yes, you know, we're trying to balance all these things, but ultimately you won't win in the marketplace with your customers if there is toxic distrust in the workplace. It's not sustainable. You might for a while, you know, market your way with PR or do great ad campaigns about the things that you do to try to win trust with customers. But how are you going to sustain trust with customers if inside the organization and on the teams is filled with toxic distrust? It's incongruent as a leader to ask people who you don't trust to go out and build trust with customers. It's incongruent yourself to be untrustworthy and to say we want to build relationships of trust with customers. So if we play this out over time, we'll find that there's a better way to lead and to operate. There's both the right thing to do and over time with all stakeholders is the economic thing to do. But those consequences are not immediate. (laughs) They're not necessarily short term. And so people can get away with it and they often do. And there's many reasons for it, including the fact that they're just good at it. They're scripted in it and they see it work. But increasingly in today's world, so open, so collaborative, all the forces that are hitting us, the change, the disruption, and the pace of change, the amount of change, the type of change, digitization, all these forces that are hitting us, the transparency, multiple generations at work. It's all requiring, even demanding a new type of leadership that's relevant for our times. And it's all more trending toward, you know, this idea of trust and trust and inspire and collaborating and teaming and creating and partnering. And so we've got to change. We've got to evolve to stay relevant. So I can understand why people still operate from this old script. It's the relics of where we've been, where we're coming from, but it's going to become increasingly relevant in a shifting, changing, disruptive, collaborative world. That's a brilliant answer. Okay, Stephen, this is time for a brief departure from our great discussion. We're going to break away for a segment we call the heartbeat round. And I've learned over the past year or so that our listeners are really interested in learning about our guests more personally. So I have a series of questions that I'd like to ask you, but this time we want you to give us a very brief and instinctive answer to each one of them. So are you ready to play? I'm ready. Let's tee it up. All right. We've talked a lot about your father. What's the greatest piece of wisdom you learned from your mother? Affirmation. To believe in myself. She instilled such a belief in me. And she did that to all my siblings as well. We developed a real sense of loyalty in our family from her. A book you wish everyone in the world would read? 
Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, the Austrian psychiatrist in the concentration camp during World War II. Cornerstone of your dad's book. Mm -hmm. Cornerstone of Seven Habits. The foundation of proactivity is is the last ultimate freedom, the freedom to choose your response. One trait you greatly admire in other people. Humility. You know, a genuine humility. You can't fake it. You know, it's authentic and real. But with that, everything good flows from it, including kindness. I love kindness as well. And generosity. I think the roots is humility. Newspaper or magazine, you never miss reading. Well, I like to kind of just skim through five papers a day. (laughs) The Wall Street Journal and USA Today to give me a sense of the world a little bit. And then my three local papers. I just skim through them just to kind of stay connected to my community. Best money you ever spent? Took my entire family to Germany for six weeks where we just kind of enjoyed being with each other, the most beautiful place in the world, and just spend time in nature with each other. It was a remarkable experience. Your best synonym for the word heart? Love. Our family's mission statement is to live, to love, to learn, to leave a legacy. And we paraphrase it in four words, body, heart, mind, spirit. And the heart is love. Skill improvement you're working on right now. Synergy. Trying to get more harmony and creativity through working in so many different areas that I sometimes feel overwhelmed. And rather than viewing them as disparate, I'm trying to get to see how one can help feed another. Just like my dad did. He'd go on his business trip and take one of his children. And that built the relationship while he was doing his professional work. That kind of synergy in my life with my personal and professional work. The quality that derails the most leadership careers. Hubris and arrogance. Again, the opposite of the humility I talked about. And when people kind of think they're the smartest guy in the room, smartest gal in the room, that can really derail you. So I think that the arrogance. One lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. That success is usually on the other side of failure. In other words, the failures actually help us find our successes. What's one tip you have for people who are about to give a speech? Seek to bless not to impress. That's my personal model. And it it gets my motive, my heart in the right place. World leader of any era who you think mastered trust, truly mastered it. I'm going to say George Washington. I just saw the musical Hamilton. And the thing about George Washington is that if you think about it, the U.S. Congress trusted him. His soldiers trusted him. The people in the colonies of the United States at the time trusted him. And even the British had great respect for him. Mm. But he was kind of trusted by everyone such that he could help lead that process. The most important leadership learning you've made in your life. Again, I will come back to my core message that this trust, to start with yourself with trust, lead out with it, model it, extend it, can have a transformative effect on everyone else. And it can be a ripple effect. And we don't need to wait on everybody else. Well, it takes two people to have trust. It only takes one to start. And each of us can be that one. So it's right in our sweet spot to be the catalyst for trust in our world in each of our worlds. And my final one, if you could witness one event of the past, present, or future, what event would you like to have seen or would you like to see? 
Well, I would have loved to have been present when Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount because of the beautiful, profound teachings that are part of that. You know, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, and so forth. To have been there would have been quite remarkable. Well, thank you, Stephen. We slowed the heart down a lot with these answers, but they're really wonderful. And so thank you. I have a couple of things I'd like to ask you before we finish, but thank you for these heartbeat question answers. You're so welcome, Mark. That was a lot of fun. I want to now transition into how do we become more trustworthy as leaders ourselves? So in your book, you said something that resonated very strongly with me is that we've all had experiences that validate the difference between a relationship that's built on trust and those that aren't. And so I want to know what are the most essential ways we as individual managers can earn and sustain their employees' trust? So we've spent a good amount of time talking about organizations and about, you know, just the big picture of trust. But I really want to make sure our audience gets some reminders, if you will. I think we all have a sense of what drives trust, but what are the big pivots here? The first starting point is that each of us needs to look in the mirror and start with ourselves. And when it comes to trust, Mark, people tend to look out at everybody else saying, I can't trust my boss or can't trust the company, can't trust this person. And that's relevant. That's contextual. But the question is, are we first looking in the mirror and starting with ourselves? And when we do that, what we need to do is ask the question, do I trust myself? Do I give to my leaders, my team, my partners, my teammates, a teammate that they can trust? a person they can trust, a partner they can trust. Is it smart to trust me? And that's going to be based upon kind of my credibility. Am I credible? Am I trustworthy? And that's a function of your character and your competence. Your character is who you are. Your competence is what you can do. The character is a constant. The competence is tied you know, to the job to be done, because none of us are perfectly competent at everything. But we need to be competent doing the work that we're supposed to do. And so we need the combination of character and competence coming together to create trust. And I highlight both those dimensions, character and competence, because too often people, when they think of trust, only think think of character. And character is first among equals. But competence is also vital, too, because someone could be honest and they could be kind of caring and loving, and that's vital for the character. But they also could not be current or relevant or able to deliver, to perform. And with such a person, an honest, caring person that's not relevant and doesn't deliver, I might trust them to watch my home or my apartment if I went on a vacation, right? (laughs) Because they're honest, but I might not trust them on the key client, the key project, the key deliverable that has to be done well and on time. If they don't have a track record of results, they don't perform. So that won't work. The other direction clearly won't work. Someone could be high in competence, but low in character. You know, so high in competence, they deliver, they get the job done, but low in character. Maybe in getting the job done, they run everybody over in the process, or maybe they're cutting corners, being unethical, and we're violating the values of the team. So yeah, I like the fact they can perform, but I'll be afraid to turn my back on them because of, you know, who they are. So I need both the character and competence. Just like when we look on someone, can we trust this person? We're looking at their character and their competence. People are doing the same with us. And we need to look in the mirror first. How credible am I? How trustworthy am I in terms of my character? That's my integrity and my intent. And this gets into your work, Mark, of intent, which is the heart. And, you know, what's my motive? 
and do I care? Caring is the motive that builds credibility and trust. And mutual benefit is the agenda, you know, win-win that builds credibility and trust. And so that's what I do. I'd look in the mirror and I start with myself. And when you start with that, then that is powerful because suddenly people can trust you. It's smart to trust you. And from that, you can build all kinds of trust with other people. Yeah. Well, how do you look yourself in the mirror? In other words, I look in the mirror and I think, hey, I'm doing a pretty good job. But is that a valid assessment, Stephen? You know, in other words, is there a way for me to, you know, get a greater sense of how other people perceive me? Because I think that's probably more valuable. It is more valuable. And we tend to judge ourselves by our intent and others by their observable behavior. (laughs) And others do the same with us. And so we tend to overestimate how we're doing compared to how others might say and by quite a bit. In fact, our data, we do kind of 360 surveys and and other team trust index where people on a team will measure how they're doing, you know, in their credibility, in their character, in their competence, in those four dimensions I just mentioned. And people assess themselves and then they assess their fellow team members of how others are doing on their team in those same areas of character and competence. And you know what, Mark, you know, with 10 Tens of thousands of data points, there's usually a 30 to 40, sometimes 50, 60, 70 point gaps where I'm okay and you're the problem. Mm -hmm. I just saw a team just two days ago where they measured themselves. The individuals measured themselves at about 90% around their character and their competence, and they measured everybody else on the same team at about 20% in dimensions of their character and their competence. You know, these were 70-point gaps, and in some cases, even 80-point gaps on individual measures. Unbelievable. But that is the risk, is that we kind of see the world through the lens. I'm okay, you've got problems. And it's especially true with trust, that, you know, you can trust me, but can I trust you? So, yeah, this is a challenge. We've got to look in the mirror and not only ask, do I trust myself, but how do others view me? And, you know, if you can get a 360 feedback instrument, we have them, others have them, you know, people do these a lot. That can be helpful, but you can just kind of do the gut check of how do I really think others? How do I see them responding, behaving? Maybe ask them, maybe get a little bit of feedback and you'll be amazed that there's a gap. And, you know, some of that's human nature, but it's very real, but we got to start there. And when people start to become aware of this and say, I got to focus on myself first, it can really change your world. I love the airline metaphor. They run that safety video and we've all seen it. And at some point in the video, it says, if we lose cabin pressure, oxygen mask will fall down. And then it says, put your own mask on first before helping others. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what, Mark, that's a great metaphor for how we build trust. Yes, there's others that need it. We want to help them. Best way you're going to do it Put your own mask on first. Stabilize yourself. Start with yourself. Become that kind of person for whom it's smart to trust. Be that kind of person for somebody else. And then you'll be in a position to really help others and to expand this and to ripple this out. So that is vital. You've identified the jugular question and issue is that we've got to look in the mirror and start with ourselves, even if we think the problem is out there is everybody else. That very thinking is the problem when that's where we go. I love that. The way you just punctuated that is brilliant. Thank you. So I steered you away from another point that you wanted to make. Do you remember what it was? (laughs) I want to make sure. Yep, I do. Okay, go for it. There's another key dimension to having trust. Here's how I'm going to frame this. Mark, you could have two trustworthy people working together, both with credibility, both with good character, good competence, and no trust between them if neither person is willing to extend trust to the other. 
You could have two trustworthy teams working together, both highly credible, both trustworthy, but no trust between them if they're not willing to extend trust to the other. So to have trust, yes, you got to be trustworthy. I'm calling that credibility, but you also have to give the trust. You have to extend it. You got to give it to get it. There's a reciprocity of trust. And when you give it, people receive it and they tend to return it. When you withhold it, they withhold it. So it's not enough just to be trustworthy. You also have to extend the trust. And that's kind of a simple framing. Does that feel like a risk to some people? Yes. I think Ernest Hemingway said something along the lines of, if you want people to trust you, you have to first trust them. And that's a leap of faith, particularly in this low trust world you're describing. So how do I get over that bias? It's like, well, I'm not so sure I trust Stephen, so I'm going to wait for him to demonstrate to me that he's trustworthy before I trust him. And you're advocating for just the opposite. So how do you get people there? I am the gamer, just the opposite in its context because it's a better way to start. You go farther, faster. I believe it's better to start by trusting people until they prove themselves unworthy of that trust. Now, be smart about it. If the risks are too great, if you know, you're know you betting the firm on this and the people aren't ready at all, that wouldn't be smart. I call it smart trust. Use good judgment. But you've identified the right question. It is a risk to trust people. I know that. You know that. Our listeners know that. And it's also a risk not to trust people. And I believe in today's world, a collaborative, interdependent world filled with multiple generations of people who come at it from different angles, I think not trusting can often be the greater risk. This is where, to piggyback on your work, Mark, to lead from the heart. And with trust, I say this, you start with heart, you balance with the head. But for me, my start with heart, that's your propensity to trust, your inclination to trust, a bias to trust, a desire to trust, to say to extend trust is a better way to lead. In context, I have some judgment applied to this, so I balance it with my head, where I assess the situation, the risk involved, the credibility of the people involved. I'm using some level of judgment, so I'm not just setting myself up to get burned and to lose everything. You know, so there's some judgment, but the key is you start with the heart, and then you can balance with the head. You'll see possibilities, options, alternatives. You would never see when you start with the heart than if you start with the head. And you'll find all the reasons why it's too risky to trust other people. And what if this happens or that happens and could go wrong? I saw this yesterday with a great leader, a university president. I was working with the university and his new president coming in and his top team coming together. And one of his direct reports comes to him and says, look, I've got this project I'm working on. I need you to look at this. It's going to take you some time to kind of run with my recommendation. And this president let out and said, you know what? I trust you. And all my brief interactions with you have been superb, but I've heard from the people that I do know well, they all say you're gold and that you're superb. And I've seen that. I see that in your record. Your track record precedes you. I trust you. So I'll basically get a little bit of energy on this, but I'm ready to go with your recommendations. And the person was blown away. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. My goodness, brand new relationship. And he starts out by saying, I trust you. And he said, it inspired me. Yeah, you just nailed it. Yeah, I'm feeling something inside of me when he said, hey, I know your reputation. So your your mind is going into this and saying, I've looked at your background. I know who you are. I know the quality of work you do. I know you wouldn't be presenting anything to me that really wasn't 
you know, up to a very high level, you've earned that. So go out and do it, go out and execute because I trust you. I mean, that would make some people just like weep, you know, because it's like, I've worked so hard and can never get that from other people. Obviously, that's why he's in that role. I used to, by the way, tell people who work for me right out of the gate, like, I trust you until you give me no reason to trust you. You have my implicit trust. I trust that you'll do the right thing. I trust that you'll be there when you need to be there, that you'll get your work done the way it needs to be, that you'll exceed my expectations most of the time. So don't ever worry that I don't trust you unless I say I've lost trust in you. And I have very, very few people ever really violated that because I think it meant more to them to sustain it than to suffer the disappointment of losing it. Beautiful, Mark. Absolutely. We need leaders like that, like you, like others that are doing, like this university president, like others that are saying this is a better starting point. And it's because of what we just have been saying, Mark, it inspires people. It brings out the best in them. They rise to the occasion. They perform better and they give the trust back to you. It becomes a virtuous upward spiral. This is the positive side of trust where just like distrust is contagious, trust is contagious. And people respond to it. They give it back and they perform better. To be trusted is the most inspiring form of human motivation. And it brings out the very best in all of us. And think of ourselves as exhibit A, when someone believed in us and extended trust to us. You know, what did that do to each of us? One of my favorite things to do with people is to ask them, and I'll do this with our listeners here on this podcast, if each of us would think about a person in our lives who believed in us, who had confidence in us, who affirmed us, who maybe believed in us at the time more than we believed in ourselves. In my words, who extended trust to us? I'll bet we all have somebody. Sometimes maybe there's multiple people, but I find that people reflect long enough, there's usually sometimes more than one. And it could be a parent, it could be a teacher, it could be a coach, it could be a clergy person, it could be you know a leader, someone in your life who believed in you. So reflect upon this person. I think of my father for me, I think of my father in my personal life, John Walsh, my first boss in my professional life who believed in me far more than I believed in myself. Now, my second question is, thinking of this person who believed in you, extended trust to you, what did that do to you, that kind of extension of trust? How did you respond to that? How did that inspire you? And my guess is for most of us, we didn't abuse the trust. No, just the opposite. Mm-hmm. We rose to the occasion. Mm-hmm. We wanted to prove it justified. It brought out the very best in us. That's certainly what my dad did with me with green and clean and everything else in my life. It's what John Walsh did with me. I wanted to prove that trust justified and give it back to him many fold and make him proud of it. And it brought up the best in me. See, we're all this way. I believe this is what leadership is about. Leadership is seeing and communicating people's worth and potential so clearly that they become inspired to see it in themselves, that they come to see it in themselves. And then my last question for all of us is, if we've had leaders like that in our life who believed in us, took a chance on us, extended trust to us, and that brought out the very best in us, for whom could we be that kind of leader? How can we pay it forward? 
How can we extend this ripple effect of trust and give it out to others and bring out the best in them by extending trust? Yes, there's a risk to do it and there's a risk not to do it. And we got to kind of balance this out. I'm, I'm not asking you to blindly go out and trust everyone. That's not smart. But I'm saying find the appropriate ways to lead out in extending trust to your people, to your team, to your partners, to your teammates. And you can become the catalyst to begin to generate the ripple effect of trust and not waiting on others to do it, not waiting on your boss and others. Find the ways that you can lead out. That's what we need in our world to combat a low trust world where you're not quite sure who you can trust. Rather than just being paralyzed by that, we need to counteract it intentionally, deliberately, Mark this is the kind of work that we need in the world today, the kind of leadership that we need. We live in a world that is overmanaged and underled. We need leadership starting with from the heart, starting with trust and letting it ripple out from there. I'm not naive. I recognize there's risk, but what about the risk of not doing it? So it's a better starting point. That's my premise. That's my belief. Well, you've made a very passionate plea for trust. And, you know, just to underscore one thing that you said that I have found is that trust when you do it and exhibit it the way you've described it, by giving it to people, by seeing their potential, by helping them, by giving people the benefit of the doubt, as the university president did, you change people's lives that way, in the most profound way, because you become a catalyst for people to see themselves differently, trust in themselves differently. It's like, somebody just gave that to me, I can give that to myself now, like you were describing. And I, I think that is a benefit of trust that is not often discussed. And I want you to know that, I mean, you've just done a very inspirational job of describing the benefits of trust that I didn't expect coming into the conversation. So thank you. On behalf of my audience, I can't thank you enough for coming and for sharing. You are one passionate guy, Stephen M. R. Covey, and I thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Mark. And what I just expressed at the end of this, the impact of trust, the power of trust to transform relationships, to change lives, to inspire, is what I feel most passionate about. So the leadership case for trust, the qualitative case for trust, the energy and joy of trust is far greater. It's incalculable. It's the right thing to do dimension of trust is truly transformative in every dimension and aspect. And so the one gives you the ticket to talk about the other. So I'm honored to be part of this effort, this movement that you're helping to lead and others like you with your tremendous work, Lead from the Heart. And so we're co-catalysts to try to help <laughs> to bring about a renaissance of trust in our world. Here, here. Thank you again, sir. It's been a delight and a pleasure. Thanks so much, Mark. Likewise. Take care. Goodbye. Before we go, I'd like to mention that Stephen's book, The Speed of Trust, has just been updated and re-released and includes additional new content. So please look for that in bookstores near you. And I'd also like to welcome our many new podcast listeners. While we were away on break, we saw a rather remarkable spike in the number of downloads for all of our previous episodes. And this is especially exciting to me because it suggests many of our regular listeners introduced us to their friends and colleagues. And for that, we are profoundly grateful. We also saw a small but meaningful increase in the number of online reviews that members of our audience took time to prepare. And so to anyone who wrote a podcast review or simply gave us a rating, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'd also like to proudly announce that 
Purdue University's Global Village is launching a class this fall called Lead from the Heart in Academia. It marks the ninth university we know of that has students reading Lead from the Heart and another great sign that educators see the future of workplace leadership and want their students fully prepared. As always, I want to thank my wonderful team, webmaster Randy Yant, sound engineer and producer Eric Oz, and my chief encourager and man of many talents, Mr. Ken Boynton. We will be back in two weeks with another wonderful guest. And in the meantime, I leave you with my constant reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now. Mm -hmm.